The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to God. We gather to worship Almighty God, to illumine the imagination by the beauty of God, to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to warm the heart by the love of God, and to devote the will to the purposes of God. We gather to worship Almighty God. The liturgy, music, and homily this morning are offered in the praise of God for our gathered congregation here within Marsh Chapel, for our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership around the globe now and later at WBUR.org. We invite your prayerful and material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of leadership and service in our midst, And as the Spirit moves come Sunday, your presence here with us in worship. This is the day the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
may we pray. O oh Lord, you have taught us that without love, whatever we do is worth nothing. Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts your greatest gift, which is love, the true bond of peace and of all virtue, without which whoever lives is accounted dead before you. Grant this for the sake of your only Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. In a moment, we pause in confession, silent individual confession. We think of Reinhold Niebuhr as a theologian, but for two decades he was a pastor in Detroit and is best known for a prayer which could be our hourly, daily, weekly prayer, the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to, the, to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. In that spirit, as our choir guides us, may we pray. Sursum corda, lift up your hearts. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from St. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 10 through 11 and 16 through 23. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If you think that you are wise in this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. So let no one boast about human leaders. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please join me in saying verses from Psalm 119 with the Antiphon. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will observe it to the end. Give me understanding, that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Turn my heart to your decrees and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at vanities. Give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise, which is for those who fear you. Turn away the disgrace that I dread, for your ordinances are good. See, I have longed for your precepts, and your righteousness give me life. Let us now stand as we are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. Glory to you, O Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good 
and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. We pause for a moment this morning to listen to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 39, and this morning's three-point sermon upon it. Well, either it is a three-point sermon or three points in search of a sermon. While there are easier sentences which might tempt us here in this reading, we shall listen to the hardest for interpreters. Do not resist one who is evil. As today's reading reminds us, we are from a deep, though intricately varied, ethical tradition that enshrines selfless love, Christocentric love, 
cruciform love as the cherished ideal of human behavior. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. We reflect this morning first on the personal dimension, second on the social dimension, and third on the contemporary dimension of our verse. Do not resist one who is evil. If anyone smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Coat, cloak, one mile, two. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? At the outset with these verses, we shall stay with the heavy emphasis they clearly have on personal relationships where the ice is thicker and we are safer. For an individual, alone and with no responsibilities to others, there are often options for selfless self-sacrifice. Our own striking remembrances of times when we have seen this verse practiced restore us. For example, a new bishop came to us just after our first year in college. He loved golf and would happily take a summer afternoon to play with some of his preachers and sometimes with their sons. This was a different era and before the more pronounced current separation of those superintending from those superintended. The general and district superintendents it was, then, it was more steadily then remembered, were simply ministers, fellow elders assigned to different sorts of work. The color purple was not so often in evidence. As one of the chief influences of our entrance into pastoral work, it is a supreme happiness to remember his kindness, his humility, and his example. I see him carefully washing hands and then offering a prayer with 12-year-olds at summer camp. There in memory he is carrying hymnals downstairs after he had spoken on the district. We served Joe spaghetti in a modest New York apartment and he was easy and at home. One August he and three others were playing golf on a public course in the heat. After the round all stopped for a soda in the clubhouse, another era, well before Methodist clergy could drink a beer, at least in front of each other or in front of the bishop. Another group asked if they had seen a putter one had left behind, and my friend remembered. A foursome at that nearby table muttered and groused about Joe and me not picking up one of their clubs that lay near a green. I was getting angry, not Joe. He got up and walked to the far side of the course to see if the club was still there. Not finding it, he returned without saying a word to our mouthy detractors. I have always looked upon this incident as a marvelous lesson in practical Christianity. For example, perhaps you too had a grandmother who baked cherry pies on February 22nd. The cherry tree myth is the most well-known and longest enduring legend about our first president, George Washington, whose birthday we honor this week and weekend. This month we have remembered James Baldwin and Frederick Douglass and we have sung the hymns of Tindley Temple as well. We also recall Lincoln and Washington. In the original story, when Washington was six years old, he received a hatchet as a gift and damaged his father's cherry tree. When his father discovered what he had done, he became angry and confronted him. And young George bravely said, I cannot tell a lie. I did cut it down with my hatchet. Washington's father embraced him and rejoiced that his son that his son's honesty was worth more than a thousand trees. 
character, kindness matter. For example, in one suburban neighborhood this autumn, a young family worked hard and were disappointed by the results of the elections. Their windows and their lawn were adorned with campaign material. You knew where they stood. When the snow came, an older neighbor one block away who had a new snowblower and some extra time plowed out his neighbor's sidewalks and driveways. By accident, at a holiday party, the young family learned that their kind plowman had voted for and staunchly supported the opposing party. The snow removal continued and is still going on. But we need to be careful here, even here where the ice is pretty thick. The words in this verse here are plural in command. You plural must not resist. But singular in object, one who is or does evil. The teaching, that is, applies to individual behavior, though it is given to all. What you may be free to do or not to do on your own is not a freedom available in the main to groups, institutions, and societies. So Niebuhr taught us. An individual may sacrifice his own interests, either without hope of reward or in the hope of an ultimate compensation. But how is an individual who is responsible for the interests of a group to justify the sacrifice of interests other than his own? No one has a right to be unselfish with other people's interests. Fewer risks can be taken with community interests than with individual interests. To some degree, the conflict between the purest individual morality and an adequate political policy must therefore remain. Hence the title of his great book, Moral Man and Immoral Society. The harder second question and the spot on the pond where the ice gets thin, or at least thinner, is regarding how far the principle can be applied to groups and especially to political life. Our recognition that the dominant, dominant alto tenor voices of the early church and evangelist, expecting the soon and very soon return of Christ, and hence shading this ethic as an interim ethic, we this winter rely on Albert Schweitzer and Amos Wilder here, may help us. How shall we hear this verse in relation to the brief span of human history given to our keeping? While there are easier applications, we shall today head straight into the hardest, the Christian ethical teaching on the place of military might. It needs no particular emphasis today to, to recognize that behind the fury and flurry of daily news, cable news that should have less viewership, major newspapers that need more calm and balance, millennials and baby boomers both who need fewer protests and more contests, fewer protests and more, more projects, there looms the prospect ever present across the globe of armed conflict. Matthew 5.39 says, resist not. So how shall we hear this verse? Over 20 centuries, and speaking with unforgivable conciseness, as one must in a 20-minute sermon, two basic understandings of war and peace have emerged in Christian thought. 
As you know, these roughly can be called the pacifist and just war understandings. We need to know this. Pacifism preceded its sibling and infinitely extends to all times the interim ethic of the Sermon on the Mount, which, here in Matthew, a late writing, expects that the coming of Christ will soon make moot our ethical dilemmas and so tends to err on the side of the personal, on the side of quietism, or in the case of arms, pacifism. To him who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Many utterly saintly Christian women and men have and do honor this understanding with their selfless commitment, including some in this congregation today. My own pulpit hero, Ernest Fremont Tittle, the best best Methodist preacher of the 20th century, did so from his Chicago pulpit through the whole of the Second World War. My namesake, Ellen Knight Chalmers, did so in pulpit and classroom near the same time, right here in Boston. Think about that for a moment. While personally I have not been able to this date anyway entirely to agree with either of them, I never compose a sermon on this topic without wondering and to some degree fearing what their judgment might be. The multiple theories of just war, or war as the least of all evil alternatives, have developed since the fourth century and particularly since the writing of St. Augustine. Here the command to be merciful, even as God is merciful, is understood tragically to include times when mercy for the lamb means armed opposition to the wolf. The New Testament apocalyptic frame and its interim ethic are honored, to be sure, but supplemented with the historic experience of the church through the ages. Many utterly saintly Christian men and women have honored this understanding with their selfless commitment including some present here today, and some who are not present because they gave their lives that others might live. Just war thought includes several serious caveats. We need to know this. A just cause in response to serious evil, a just intention for restoration of peace with justice, an absence of self-enrichment or desire for devastation, a use as an utterly last resort, a claim of legitimate authority, and a reasonable hope of success given the constraints of discrimination and proportionality, usually understood as protection of non-combatants. Response, restoration, restraint, last resort, common authority. Prayerfully, we each and we all will want to consider our own understanding, our own Christian understanding of Christian ethics, our own choice and choices between these two basic alternatives. But the careful listener this February of 2017 will want and need a thought or two about how together, as those who influence culture together, we might positively and proactively live out Matthew 5.39. Our age and our world are embedded with nuclear weaponry, which by grace, with luck thus far since 1949, since 1945, has not been used. But as one wrote last week, 
Luck is not a plan, and luck tends to run out. We are keenly aware as well that in the nuclear age, the temperament, judgment, and character of those in positions of dispositive power are crucial. We are aware as well of the influence for good and ill that leadership carries, including the power to shred inherited long-standing forms of etiquette, diplomacy, and culture on an hourly, daily basis. We do well as well to remember that the wise and primary impetus for globalization is not market economics, but lasting security. So far in this sermon, we have offered first a qualified application of our verse to personal ethics and and second, a qualified separation of the verse from literal use in social ethics. Third, what does the verse call for through us today? We will pause now to welcome a visitor to our service. Welcome, you'll welcome him. You'll find him to my right and down the west aisle of the chapel. He's standing alone and has been with us before. Actually, his worship attendance at Marsh Chapel has been perfect for 60 years every Sunday, a far better record than he had in life. For he is enshrined in one of our conic stained glass windows, one of the many novel choices the fourth president of Boston University, Daniel Marsh, made in designing our chapel. Abraham Lincoln may be able to offer us some assistance today on President's Weekend. In the fall of 1855, two men as different as life and death stood beside each other on debate platforms in Illinois. To the right was the carefully groomed, smooth-speaking, dapperly dressed Senator Stephen Douglas. To his left, looking like a bumpkin, stood a gangly, homely man, overly tall and saddled with a high-pitched, irritating voice. They debated for the heart of the country And Lincoln lost. In his career, he lost and lost and lost. In 1858, he lost, even though virtually every point he made in his speeches proved true. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Accustomed to trample on the rights of others, you have lost the genius of your own independence. Those who deny freedom to others deserve it not for themselves. True, true, true. He won in 1860, but in 1862 his party was thrashed. He said, I'm too big to cry and too badly hurt to laugh. And in 1863 the horror of Gettysburg quickened his finest address. And in 1864, challenged by his own subordinate, he barely won. And in 1865 on Good Friday, he too was dead. Lincoln spoke of his beloved country in the soaring phrase, the last best hope. Lincoln, who lost and lost and lost, exemplified a lifelong resistance, resistance to resentment. He got up and he tried again, time after time. He did not let the inevitable resentments of life stymie him. He was a loser, not a winner, but he resisted. 
resentment. Lincoln resisted resentment and, by example, guides us as well. Sometimes it is better to have patience than brains if we can restrain ourselves in the future from making scapegoats of some in order furiously to retaliate retaliate against other hidden foes, that is, we shall find that the community of peoples around the globe will see in us, again, a last best hope. We may model as a people a path forward into a time of freedom, pluralism, toleration, compromise, and peace. Here Lincoln holds a key for us a dream and hope of malice toward none. We may be entering an epoch of spiritual discipline against resentment. Here I simply refer to a great American and a greater historian, Christopher Lash, and his rumination on the work of Reinhold Niebuhr. He wrote, The only way to break the endless cycle of injustice, Niebuhr argued, was nonviolent coercion, nonviolent coercion, with its spiritual discipline against resentment. In order to undermine an oppressor's claims to moral superiority, one has to avoid such claims on their own behalf. Again, in the confines of a sermon, one can only sketch. Lash's essay distilled this theme, a spiritual discipline against resentment, from the lives and writings of Niebuhr, but also Martin Luther King, but also the Boston personalists and many others. He saw, as we too may see in the Matthean passage earlier read, the necessity of holding at bay those deeply human sentiments that easily and tragically attach themselves to us when we are fearful, when we are attacked, when we are violated. For a future to emerge that is more than simply a repetition of the patterns of the past, a people, our people, we the people, will have to develop such a spiritual discipline against resentment. What is this discipline? What does it look like? How is one to find its power? Truly I see no other source than a confessional reliance on the Christ of Calvary and no better reading than the one we heard a moment ago, Matthew 5, 38 and following. Frederick Douglass reminds us, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. A spiritual discipline against resentment. It is quotidian. It is tedious. It is daily work. And it will consume easily for each of us the next decade. It was the genius of Isaiah Berlin, with whom we conclude, which best bespoke this wise admonition to a discipline. Yours? Against resentment, he wrote. Collisions, even if they cannot be avoided, can be softened. Claims can be balanced 
compromises can be reached. In concrete situations, not every claim is of equal force. So much liberty, so much equality, so much for sharp moral condemnation, so much for understanding a given situation, so much for the full force of law, and so much for the prerogative of mercy, for feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, healing the sick, sheltering the homeless. Priorities, never final or absolute, must be established. Of course, social or political collisions will take place. The mere conflict of positive values alone makes this unavoidable. Yet they can be minimized by promoting and preserving an uneasy equilibrium which is constantly threatened and in constant need of repair. That alone is the precondition for decent societies and morally acceptable behavior. Otherwise, we are bound to lose our way. A little dull as a solution, you will say, yet there is great truth in this. For you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and your hate, your en- hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love who, those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be whole, even as your heavenly Father is holy. Amen. We now come to a time in our service when we turn our hearts and minds to prayer and lift up our lives and ourselves to God. Please assume an attitude and posture of prayer by either remaining seated, standing, kneeling, or coming to the communion rail as we sing together our call to prayer, Lead Me, Lord. Dear God, creator of the universe, every day we find ourselves as momentary carbon stories, finding meaning on this pale blue dot and finding significance in the insignificant. 
Every day, we find tensions in our lives, in our societies, and in our world. We see moments of positive meaning and hope, and moments of sadness and pain. We see it all on our little mode of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. Every action we make and have on this mode of dust has consequences, and is significant, and yet we are a humble mode of dust. We pray that we recognize where you are in our actions, and your presence as the ground of being in our existences, as beings living in our fragile world. We pray for the brief moments and for the grand moments. We pray for our experiences and for the vibrant communities we are a part of. We pray for our community in the heart of the city as we live out our existences as vessels of love and as we attempt to reflect your love. Let us accept and embrace the wonderful fragileness and tension that is our existence, experiencing reality on earth, our humble mode of dust suspended in a sunbeam, and yet seeing the awestruck wonder, grandeur, mystery and beauty in such a humble existence, reflecting the mystery and grandeur of the humble life of the one who took on our fragility in time, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. And as our Savior Christ has taught us, we now pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Good morning. 
Welcome to Marsh Chapel, whether you join us here in the nave at 735 Commonwealth Avenue, by radio airwaves at 90.9 WBUR, or via the podcast. We are glad that you are with us for a moment of pause, rest, and worship. As we strive to be a service in the service of the city, Boston, and a heart in the heart of the city, know that you are welcome here, immigrant, refugee, or seventh-generation New Englander. Black, brown, white, gay, straight, bi, trans, something else, or simply not sure, you are welcome here. Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Green Party, or Independent, you are welcome here. We want to get to know you better and help you get to know the community here better. Send us an email at chapel at bu.edu or call the office at 617-353-3560. That's 617-353-3560. Or if you're in the nave, find a red pad along the center aisle and add your name to it. Learn the name of your neighbor and greet them by name after the service downstairs during coffee hour. Hi, I'm Soren Hessler. I'm delighted to meet you. I'd like to highlight a few of the activities and events going on at the chapel this week, but first I do want to note that the chapel offices are closed tomorrow in observance of President's Day, and all usual activities are canceled. First, Lent is fast approaching. If you are interested in the Lent devotional series, you can sign up on the chapel website at bu.edu chapel. Our second announcement is that MOVE, the Marsh Organization for Volunteer Engagement, uh, is starting up this week. If you're interested in participating in service activities, fellowship, and food, uh, you can join a few undergraduate students who are gathering here on Tuesday at 5 p.m. in the Marsh Room. If you're interested, you can see Denise Nicole Stone, who is in the very back pew over there, or Tom Batson, who's sitting over there, or Nick Rodriguez, who is also sitting here on the chancel. They'd be li- delighted to talk with you, or if you're not here in the nave, you can send an email to chapel at bu.edu. Third, there is a retreat happening here, a study retreat on Saturday. You may have seen these flyers. If you're in a dormitory, you might have found one in your hallway. Uh, We'd ask for your RSVP by Thursday. The Saturday retreat is this Saturday. Uh, There are meals, non-sectarian meditations, study time, support, and engagement. The day is designed to help you move forward in your studies for the semester. And finally, for those who listen regularly to the Marsh Chapel service Sunday or weekday while exercising and would like to become part of a listserv for information and health about spirituality, you may contact Heidi Freemonis Courts, who is our staff coordinator uh, at chapel at bu.edu, and she'll get you plugged into that. For other activities and events, please see the bulletin or the chapel website, bu.edu slash chapel, where there is also the opportunity for online giving. And now, as the ushers wait upon those in the nave during the offertory, let us remember that it is both a gift and a discipline to be a giver.
merciful God, everything in heaven and earth belongs to you. We joyfully release what you have entrusted to us. May these gifts be signs of our whole lives returned to you, dedicated to the healing and unity of all creation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. May the sun show warm and bright on you, your darkest night a star shine through, your dullest morn a radiance brew, and when dusk comes, God's hand to you. The blessing of God Almighty, creator, redeemer, and sustainer be and abide with each one of us now and forever. Amen. 